Who do you say that Jesus is? The future of every man, woman, and child in this room and the world around us hinges on the answer. Who do you say that I am? If there's ever a question that you need to be right about, this is it. In the region of Caesarea Philippi, there was a cave that was referred to as the Gate of the Underworld. In Christ's day, this was a very wicked place. And yet, it was to this area that Jesus traveled in Matthew 16 in order to teach his disciples something important about the power and coming victory of the church. In the very northern part of Israel, there is a cave. There is a dark cave. It sits at the base of a huge slab of rock in the region known as Caesarea Philippi. Now, this cave has a sordid, sordid past. It was once considered to be the very mouth of the underworld, the very gates of hell, so to speak, and all sorts of evil, all sorts of idolatrous, wicked, pagan practices occurred in its shadow, right in front of this cave's large, gaping maw. All sorts of abominations took place. Now, way back in the Old Testament, if you will look that far back, the Canaanites were in this land, and the Canaanites practiced all manner of hideous things, and one of the things they did at this very cave at which time water was rushing out of the mouth of it. You look down, it looked like an abyss that water was coming out. The Canaanites would sacrifice infants into the waters, into the waters at that time. Human sacrifice and other atrocities were committed. By the time you get to the New Testament, atrocities continue just by different people. As we come to the New Testament, the Greeks had gained control over this region. Leading up to the time of the Romans and the Greeks, prior to the Romans, they had worshipped a god named Pan in this area, who was the god of fertility. And because Pan was God of fertility, you can imagine that some of the most pagan and grotesque sexual rituals took place at the mouth of this cave. Without going into more details than that, we can say this much, that this region, this cave, this area here at Caesarea Philippi was known for its depravity in times of antiquity and absolutely in the time of Christ. In fact, you would be hard-pressed across the entire globe to find 10 acres of land where this much atrocity, this much depravity had taken place. In Christ's day, everyone would have known it through that lens. In Christ's day, to go to Caesarea Philippi was at least the Jewish equivalent of entering into the red-light district. And yet, in spite of that reputation, in spite of it being a place that the Jews didn't even travel, again, it was largely Gentiles that lived there, in spite of its history, in spite of its reputation, it is here in Matthew 16 that Jesus leads his disciples in order to teach them, in order to train them in something that would be tattooed and printed on their hearts, minds, and eyes in a way that could not be done otherwise in Capernaum or down the road. See, in today's reading in Matthew 16, Jesus is going to take his disciples into this region, near this huge slab of rock, near this daunting and formidable cave, and the temples and all the things that were devoted to Pan. He's going to take him to this area that was known as the Gate of the Underworld, the Gates of Hell, the Gates of Hades, and he's going to make a large spiritual point that would forever imprint itself on the minds of the disciples, and for you and I, for that matter. Specifically, within either eyeshot, earshot, or stone's throw of this cave, this door to the underworld, according to pagan religions of the time, Jesus was going to remind his disciples against that wicked backdrop that when his church, when Christ's church was ultimately built, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. 
The gates of hell would not prevail against it. In other words, Jesus went right into enemy territory here in Matthew 16 to declare the certainty of his coming victory over the powers of darkness. All right, let's look now. Let's consider that victory. Let's look now. Verse 13 of our text, and we'll work our way through the bulk of the passage. Verse 13 says this. When Jesus had come into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who are people saying that I am? You know, back in uh, 2018... Before all the current travel restrictions and the like, I had an opportunity to visit Israel. I had an opportunity to visit this area, to visit Caesarea Philippi, and to stand in the same general area where this took place and to observe the formidable slab of rock in the cave that sits at its mouth. Now, if you've ever been to the overall region of Caesarea Philippi, if you've ever been to northern Israel, you know this, that it is one of the most beautiful places on all of earth. You see, to the north, Caesarea Philippi, if you were to look just to the northwest of that, you'd see Mount Hermon. You see the snow-capped peaks of Mount Hermon. If you look off to the east, you'd see the Golan Heights. And where you are at Caesarea Philippi, it's at the top of a rift valley that leads down south. The Jordan River, one of three spots that it's said to originate, is right there at the mouth, right in front of the gate there at Caesarea Philippi. In any case, it's a beautiful region. It really is. If you ever go to the south, you ever go to Judea, if you ever go to southern Israel, the distinction could not be greater. Southern Israel, whatever you picture John the Baptist having lived, it looks like that. Locust, sagebrush, tumbleweeds and the like is a completely different environment from the north. The north is beautiful. And because it's so beautiful, one of the cruel ironies is in spite of the beauty and the radiant majesty and the glory of God that's evident everywhere you look in spite of all that, what's fascinating is that northern Israel was home to some of the most pagan practices of antiquity. Despite of how beautiful it was, remember this is an area where the Canaanites camped out back in days of yore and worshipped Baal and the like. And of course, entering in the New Testament times, the Greeks worshipped Pan there. The Romans came along and pretty much adopted Greek gods there and did the same thing. Not too far down the road, within a walk, you can reach a place called Tel Dan. And that was a place where even the Israelites set up a golden calf there at Tel Dan, one of the high places. In general, this region is known far more for its apostasy and its abominations than it is for its righteousness, in spite of, again, the manifest glory of God everywhere you look. Whatever the case is, Caesarea Philippi had a reputation, as we said earlier. Caesarea Philippi had a reputation. And most folks in Christ's time would have avoided this area like the plague. And yet, verse 13 says that Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi. This was the equivalent... This was the first century equivalent of taking your Bible study down to Bourbon Street. That's what he was doing in this context. And Christ's disciples must have said, what is going on here? You know, Capernaum's pretty nice. What's wrong with having this study in Capernaum? We were doing pretty well down by the Sea of Galilee. What's wrong with that? And yet he brings them there and he asks them this question with an eye shot, ear shot, stones throw of this cave and this wall and the pagan practices. He asks them a question, who do men say that I am? Let's see their response. Let's see how they responded to him in verse 14. So they said, some are saying John the Baptist. Some are saying Elijah and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Asked Christ. You know, at this point in his ministry... Jesus had done a lot of things. He'd done a lot of miracles. He'd done things people had never seen. He said things people had never heard. This man stood out. 
in his context, as one who was different, who was set apart. And because he was no average, ordinary Joe at that time, because this was true, there was a lot of speculation as to his true identity. And it's against the backdrop of that speculation. He takes his disciples and he says, all right, all right, I know people are talking. What are they saying? Now, of course, Jesus knows the answer to any question he asks, but he wants to hear their response. So he says, what are people saying? Who do they say that I am? And they go, well, here's what we're hearing, oh, Jesus. Some, some believe that you're John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah, or perhaps Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. You know, maybe you're Amos, maybe you're Isaiah, you're one of them. They kind of said, you could be anybody from antiquity, that's what they're saying. Now, that's a weird answer. That's a weird answer. We don't say that about one another. Even if there's some interesting person walk down the street and you go, who's that? Who's, who's that guy? Our reaction is not immediately to reach back to some reincarnated person from the past. We wouldn't do that. So why did they do that? Why did they say, well, it's Jeremiah, Elijah, and the like? Well, there's been a lot of speculation as to this question. Centuries ago, there was the famous Jewish historian. His name was Josephus. And he noted that the Jews of this age, led by the Pharisees, over and against the Sadducees at that time, they may have adopted, it's a little cloudy, but they may have adopted a view of the afterlife that included something called the transmigration of souls. In other words, they may have thought that good, devout men could walk again. This is the reason they're speculating that Jesus was actually Elijah, Jeremiah, and so forth. Now, transmigration may or may not have been something that informed their views on Jesus. But whatever the case, we know this. Whatever the case, we know that they're seeing Jesus through a prism that led them to conclude he was someone altogether different than who he was. They were not seeing him rightly is the takeaway here. Here's the Messiah, the Lamb of God, come down from the throne to live, breathe, and dwell amongst his people. And he asks, who do people think I am? Instead of the right answer, the saving answer, instead of saying you're the seed of Genesis 3.15, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one. Instead of saying that, the people are saying, well, he's clearly one of the prophets. Clearly he's one of the prophets that have returned. The people had them all wrong. And the disciples knew it. Disciples knew it. With that said, now, as we look at verses 15 and 16, Jesus is going to ask them. He's going to say, all right, so the people think I'm one of these other guys. What about you? What about you? Let's look at verses 15 and 16. And now he said to them, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let me ask you a question, the most relevant question you could be asked today or any day. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? The future of every man, woman, and child in this room and the world around us hinges on the answer. Who do you say that I am? If there's ever a question that you need to be right about, this is it. You can be wrong about a lot of things in life and and still get by. You can't be wrong about this. Who do you say that I am? Well, fortunately for our friend Peter, you remember in kindergarten, teacher asks a question, you know, all the hands, me, 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 all the hands go up. Someone tries to speak out above the rest and blurt out the answer. Well, that's the equivalent of what Peter does here. Before the disciples can answer, Peter's hand shoots up, his, his mouth speaks. He says, you, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I got this one. There was things Peter didn't have right, even in his theology at this time, but he had this right. 
You are the Christ. You are the one that was expected. You are the one who was promised. You are the seed. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The people of Christ's day were more blessed than they knew. They had been looking forward to the coming of one who would save them, one who would redeem them. And yet when he showed up, what did they do? They killed him. Why? Because they didn't recognize him. They didn't know who he was. Scripture told them what to expect. Scripture talked about this lamb who would be slain, this one who would come, this one upon whom the sin and iniquity would be placed upon him, who would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and the like, and yet what did they want? Not that. They wanted one who would ride into Jerusalem with the head of an army, the head of a chariot, one who would trample the wicked Romans, one who would usher in the days of milk and honey. They wanted something different than that which they got. They did not have the right answer to the question, and yet Peter did. Peter did. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Now, there's a couple things we can observe from Peter's words here. First of all, it's clear that Peter knew that Jesus, Jesus was no mere man. Others were saying, you're Elijah, Jeremiah, someone of flesh and blood, what have you. Peter says, no. You are the Son of the living God. Jewish theology of that time makes clear that was a clear and explicit reference to deity. To deity. Peter knew it. Secondarily, something else we can observe from this text from Peter's answer is the context in which this was set against the backdrop of this wall, the backdrop of the shrines to Pan and the like, against this backdrop of idolatry and pagan practices and the like. What did Peter say? He says, you, you are the son of the living God. Do you see the distinction? Back in their day, they had gods of stone and marble and wood and cotton candy and everything else. They had all sorts of different gods, right? Anything you could whittle up, anything you could fashion, they would bow down before. It was silly. It was ridiculous. These were dead gods, lowercase g. Peter says, you, however, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The son of the God who lives and breathes. You are one who lives and breathes and makes intercession for us. You are the son of the living God. To say this was to reject Pan, to reject the gods of the pagans, to reject every other belief system under the sun. And that was a good profession. That was a good profession. Let's look at Christ's response to Peter's words now. Let's look at verse 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Christ's response in verse 17, it's interesting. It's fascinating. Think about this. He's asked a question. He's asked a question. Put the softball up on the tee, and, and Peter has hit it out of the park. Jesus could have said, right on, Peter. You've got this gold star for Peter. He could have just affirmed what Peter had said, but that's not all he does. Here in verse 17, Jesus affirms what he has said, but then he adds a theological treatise, a theological statement. And he says, Peter, you're not only right, but you are blessed. You're not only accurate, but you are blessed because the answer that you gave didn't come from within. Men of flesh and blood didn't tell you this. However, you are blessed because you received, you heard this answer. This answer was revealed to you by my Father. You know, throughout Scripture, we learn this. We don't choose God, but God chooses us. John six forty four says this. No one can come to me unless my Father who is in heaven draws him. Throughout Scripture, we see this picture that while we are sinners, gone astray, God has placed his saving love upon us. He has drawn us to himself. 
What Jesus is saying to Peter is he's saying, blessed are you. You didn't figure this stuff out just because you paid attention to all the signs, you read all the books, you did what was right and so forth, and you drew the right conclusions, and hurrah. He says, no. He says, you're blessed because in spite of the sinful cacophony within your head and your heart, God has revealed something to you. He has revealed the accurateness of your statement. And he has tattooed it through the Spirit upon your heart. You are blessed in more ways than you understand. Oh, Peter, the nature of this revelation that came from my Father about my identity. No one can come to me unless my Father does this. Unless my Father reveals. Unless my Father draws. And he has done that for you, oh, Peter. Has he done that for you? Has he done that for ones that we love and care about? Has the Father drawn? John 10 Jesus, in the midst of a long season of arguing with the Pharisees, he makes a distinction between sheep and goats. And he says this. He says, my sheep, they hear my voice, and they follow me. As he looked at his disciples there, he knew his sheep. They follow me, and I give them eternal life, and no one shall take them out of my hand. And then he says this. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Repeatedly, Jesus Place the volition of being given the sheep, given the saints, given you and I to the Father. No one can come to me unless my Father draws him. Blessed are you, Simon Peter, because you didn't learn this from flesh and blood, but you learned it from my Father. There's a great doctrine of the Trinity embedded in these words, the doctrine of election, predestination, whatever you want to call it. There's a wealth of theology in Jesus' answer, more than we have time to linger on. But for our purposes, it's encouraging to know that God had chosen Peter, elected Peter, saved Peter, taught Peter, revealed himself to Peter. And because of that, Peter could answer correctly and make the claim that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hope you and I can say the same thing. Let's look at our remaining verses. Let's look at verses 18 and 19 now. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We now come to one of the most controversial passages in the history of the church. A passage that to this day continues to divide the church with regards to its interpretation. With regards to what it means, what it says. So Jesus, he looks at Peter, he affirms what Peter said. He says, Peter, you're blessed Then he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Let me ask you a question. What's the rock? As you think through in your own mind, don't shout it out, but what's the rock? What's the rock? What is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean? Well, there are more than one possibility that has been explored. Now, the first possibility is this. It's a possibility that has been embraced by historic Rome. And that is to say the rock, Petrus in Greek here, on which the church would be built is Peter. Is Peter himself. In other words, Roman Catholicism has historically asserted that Peter is the rock that is in reference here upon which the church would be built. That the papal office, so to speak, that he would occupy would thereafter be given the keys to heaven and hell. This is generically speaking, broadly speaking, there are nuances, but this is broadly speaking the view of Rome. But that said, what do you think the Protestant view is? What do you think the Reformed view, the evangelical view perhaps, is of this statement? 
What do you think that our view is here today? Well, while the Roman Catholic Church has historically said that Peter is the rock, the Protestant view has typically said this. It is Peter's profession that is the rock. In other words, what is said is, moments earlier, Peter had just made the profession that you and I must make. The same profession that saints everywhere are called to make, that Jesus is the Son of God, to place our trust and our hope in this one, to name him by name, to profess our hope and faith in him. The church is built on that basis. The vows we take in our own congregation, we represent that exact statement, that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He is who Scripture says he is. That profession, the understanding is, within Protestant evangelical churches, that profession is what the church is built upon. What Peter had to say is what is critical here. Now, what I've just said is an oversimplification of two different viewpoints. Again, we don't have all the time in the world to linger on these. It's an oversimplification, but it's essentially representative of those two contrasts. Now, while I personally tend to agree with the Protestant view of this passage, let me suggest, let me introduce some context that may be helpful in understanding that position better. See, as we said at the outset here this morning, we have to remember when and where this statement is taking place. This is not a conversation that the disciples were having in the upper room by the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and any other place. This was a fascinating, interesting conversation that was had in a fascinating, interesting place. They were in Caesarea Philippi. Again, the red light district, home of paganism, right near what was commonly believed to be the very gates of hell among the pagans. That is where this conversation is taking place, in the shadow of this great rock outcropping that sits above the very gates of the underworld, so to speak. With that setting in view, listen again to the fullness of Christ's words. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not defend against it. The context is critical to a right understanding of the words. For that matter, the second part of the sentence is important to understand the first. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Sometimes people just stop there as if that was the fullness of what Christ had to say. That was only the first part of the sentence. The second part said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In order to understand the first part of what Jesus said, it helps to understand the second. It helps to understand the second because it informs the meaning. Jesus and the disciples were talking they were not far, again, eye shot, ear shot, stones throw. They were not far from the gates of hell, at least what was commonly understood to be that at that time. With that said, the question becomes, what if, what if the rock in question could at least telescopically be understood? There could be more than one way to interpret and understand what Christ is saying here. But what if the rock in question also, maybe parenthetically, is a reference to the giant rock slab that was right in front of them? What if Christ is making the case making the case, at least in part in Matthew 16, that the church would be built on top of the rocks and ruins of this present darkness. What if that is at least one of the things that we can extract from his words? See, Peter's profession is absolutely foundational for the church. Absolutely foundational. And yet, when you consider what Christ said about the church being built upon the rocks, so to speak... If you've ever traveled across Israel, there's all manner of big, large mounds. They're called tells. 
big, large, grassy mounds. They're, they're huge. And what they are is one society, one civilization, one city has been built, raised, destroyed, in other words, built on top of it, perhaps raised, destroyed, and so on and so forth. Sometimes multiple iterations. One empire, one part of Israel, or the Assyrians, or Babylonians, or Romans, or others would come along, and what would happen is they destroyed the previous civilization, they would build on top of it. They would build what their view was a superior kingdom on top of the ruins of the old one. And to this day, you can see these things, and yet what's happened for most of them is that you can't see any ruins at all because grass and clover and dirt and the like have overtaken all of them. However, these tell this picture of one kingdom superseding, transcending, defeating the others. And for what it's worth, the historical context and setting of this passage seems to suggest, seems to invoke the transcendence, the coming of his kingdom, of Christ's kingdom, upon, over above the kingdoms of this earth. On this rock, perhaps, as he looks out, as they all look out at this giant slab of rock and the gates of hell beneath it, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates, they will not prevail against it. What they represent and who they represent will not take down my church. My church will be victorious. And he's saying this to disciples who are scared. At one point, remember, the church was like a mustard seed. You could take most all the saints and they occupied an upper room. But in time, what has happened? In time, in the midst of every pagan, idolatrous culture across the entire globe, what has happened? The kingdom has leavened and spread and transcended all of them. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Again, none of this picture of the gates and the rock and the slab and all that discounts the reality of Peter's profession, that that is a basis by which the church is built. But it's helpful to at least picture and understand the reference point that Jesus deliberately brought them forward to see as he uttered these words. With our remaining moments this morning, let me share a few uh, relevant words and thoughts about the church, the church which Christ loves, the church which he spoke of in today's passage. In today's reading, you can't help but see Christ's love for the church. Christ's love and affection and belief in the future of the church. It's encouraging. As we live in a day in a church age that seems kind of shadowy at times, it's neat, it's wonderful to see Jesus speak about the church as this prevailing power, as this force that doesn't sit and cower in a corner, but which assaults, takes down, defeats the very gates of hell itself. That's neat to think. Why? Because you and I are part of it. We are the church. The church is not a building. It's not an institution, a denomination. It is the very people of God. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the ministry, the kingdom work that is done by the church. The assembled saints. Now, in our own day, the church doesn't seem, perhaps, to be particularly strong. In the eyes of many, they look at the church and they say, well, we are by heresies distressed, as the song goes. We are afflicted in all regards. There are false prophets. There are wolves. There's televangelists. There's all sorts of things that ought not be. There's false beliefs, false teachers. We're at a low ebb. We're weak. A lot of folks look at the church and they decry the state of the church. And a lot of things they decry, they're right about. And yet... And yet, if someone tells you that the church of Christ is weak, don't believe it for a moment. It may appear so, but it is not a reality. 
See, the problem is not that the church is weak. The problem is not that the church is weak, heaven forbid. The problem is not that the church is weak. The problem is that so much of what people call the church isn't the church. That's the distinction. See, the church is filled with all manner of people and even institutions that are Christian by name, who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. You don't believe it? you got a lot of homework to do in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, what does Jesus say? He says, many will come to me on that day. Not a few, not one guy down the road, many. I think the picture is of a majority. Many will come to me on that day, the day of judgment. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. Using the Hebrew repetition of familiarity. Lord, Lord. Did we not do this? Did we not serve? Did we not give? Were we not officers? Did we not do all the things we ought to do? Did we not serve you in such and such a way? Did we not prophesy and the like? And what does Jesus say? You remember? He looks at these same ones and he says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Many will come to me on that day. These are the ones that Jesus spoke of there. And he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Know this. The visible church and the world around us, the visible church is not the actual church. The visible church is much bigger and broader than the invisible remnant within it. Than the invisible remnant within it. It was true in the case of Israel. This is not a revolutionary teaching, just so you know. It was true in the case of Israel, was it not? Not all Israel was Israel. Israel, if you flip through the Old Testament, it looked bloated and sickly and diseased. There was all manner of things wrong. Absolutely there was throughout the Old Testament. Israel looked like it was diseased, like it was weak. Just as the church in the New Testament sometimes looks that way. Whether in the Old Testament, the New Testament, you know, heresies, false teachers, pandemics, all manner of evils beset the church, beset God's people in whatever context they served, in whatever century they served. And yet, in every century, in every time, in every era, Old Testament, New Testament, God had a remnant. He has one still. God had a remnant of faithful ones in every generation. Now, true, it was much smaller than the visible body. Think of Elijah. Remember, he was cowering under the sycamore tree, weeping. Thinks he's alone. He goes off to a cave and God shows him his power, shows him through the earthquake and the fire and the light. God shows him his power. And then in a still, small voice, God whispered to Elijah and it was a reminder of his abiding presence. And then he also reminded Elijah of this, that he was not alone, that there were thousands that he had preserved, that God had preserved as a remnant even in the most wicked age of Ahab and Jezebel. Visible Israel was not representative of actual Israel, the seed of faith of Abraham. It's no different in our day. Make no mistake, the church is doing just fine. The church is being sanctified this morning, here and elsewhere around the globe. The church is a strong, is a strong, and has a strong and vital remnant. There's a proud and vibrant remnant within the visible body. And if there is a blessing to be found in the coronavirus, and I'm hard-pressed to find one, but if there is a blessing to be found in the coronavirus and its impacts, it is this, that the remnant is easier to recognize now than it once was. The remnant is easier to recognize in the midst of this worldwide falling away. And whatever the case, the actual body of Christ 
the actual body of Christ. Whatever context, whatever locations, it is found. The true believing body of Christ is exceptionally strong this morning. And that body is not waiting for some future day to march on hell's gates, but is doing so even now. The church is storming the gates of hell every time the gospel is declared, every time the sacraments are engaged, and every time a church is planted, every time a soul is converted, every time a crucified and risen Christ is preached, the kingdom is advanced, hell's gates are threatened. And what's neat to consider, all these centuries after Christ uttered those words, what's neat to consider is that hell's gates are giving way even now. If you could see them, their hinges are sorely tested, sorely stressed. The sound we hear sometimes and the wickedness of the pagan world around us, that's hell's last gasp before the eternal and secured victory of Christ that is to come. And that's cool to think about. It's cool to remember we are not weak. We are strong, whatever evil we may see in the days yet to come. It is good to remember that. Let's pray. In today's study, we've gone verse by verse through Scripture. If this sort of expositional preaching is what you're looking for, then please subscribe to this podcast and check back tomorrow for another verse-by-verse study of God's Word. 